Hello, and welcome to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Rebecca Strang, and today we're welcoming back Janice Turner of Ren Games. Last summer, I spoke with Janice about Assembly, which was a Kickstarter success and a puzzly sci-fi escape game. And today I'm going to be talking with her about Sensor Ghosts, the sequel to Assembly and also a Kickstarter success. Welcome back to the show, Janice. Hi, thanks for having me back on again, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm so happy to be talking to you again. So with Assembly, we escaped near death on a space station. And now in Sensor Ghosts, we're kind of hurtling towards Earth in the shuttle that we built. So can you tell us a bit about where Sensor Ghosts picks up from where Assembly left off? Yes. Yeah, so in Sensor Ghosts, you have built your spaceship, which is a great start. And you think you've managed to escape and you're on way back to Earth. But then unfortunately, you look out the window and your sensors and they don't quite align. What you see and what is actually there isn't actually necessarily true. So either you've built your ship completely wrong or that pesky AI has got on board and she's causing what's called sensor ghosts. So that's where your sensors are displaying something that isn't actually necessarily there or is displaying nothing when there is something there. So it's all about how you have to make your way through back to Earth through an asteroid field, not actually really knowing what's there. So you've got to try to find a safe path and reveal it and discover it as you go to get home. So there's a bit of pushy luck. You've got to, there's a bit of memory, but both Stu and I hate memory games. So we've tried to minimize that as much as possible. And obviously, asteroids are not just stationary sitting there waiting for you to go straight into them. The asteroid's moving, so everything's moving as well. So yeah, you've got to find your way through and get back to Earth without dying. And if you feel (laughs) particularly brave, there's a little mini add-on that you see a signal and there's an escape pod. And as soon as you've seen the signal, you can't live yourself unless you get that escape pod back to Earth as well. And so now you have to not only navigate yourself a safe path back, but also the escape path a safe path back. And they move slightly differently. And they interact with the cards slightly differently. So it's an extra layer of puzzle on top as well. That's awesome. It sounds like a summer blockbuster movie all packed into this (laughs) tiny little box. (laughs) Well, that is it's trying to give something a bit more meaning. So the the core mechanics in both Assembly and Sensor Ghosts are generally described as an abstract game. Mm -hmm. Some people love the story. And some people say it's a, a bit over the top and why on earth have you got any story on there? But it's easy to ignore story. It's not as easy to make it up and we like it and it gives us boundaries to work within and really helps shape and design the mechanisms within the game. Yeah, I personally love stories in games. I mean, I love mechanisms that are fantastically put together and flow really well, but I also like having story on top of that. And the art that you have in here, I love it looks like space when you're looking through the cards that you have as your sensors. And for me, it's rather immersive. So I love that you guys did the story with it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, we enjoy, <laughs> we've enjoyed writing it as well and sort of tweaking it and making it work both ways, making the story work for the game and making the game work for the story. It's um, a really fun way to design. And it's more also, it's not just about story. I think a lot of people get story and theme slightly mixed up. So most games have theme of some sort. Mm-hmm. But in Sensor Ghosts, I guess the difference is story is in this throughout the rule book, there's little reasons of why each mechanism exists within the game. So hopefully you understand 
the reason why you're doing something. So everything that you do should have purpose rather than it just being a top level. This is why you're trying to get home. This is why you're trying to get home. And this is why your senses don't function. And this is why this happens. And this is how you can do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I know last time I spoke with you, we talked a lot about what accessibility means to you. And I know since then, you have written an article about the lessons that you've learned in accessibility when you were designing and producing assembly. So what from those lessons have you carried over into the design of Sensor Ghosts? Uh, So in terms of accessibility, if you sort of broaden that to be not just, I guess, impairments, but also inclusivity, which is, I guess, what the blog post was about. So looking at cultural gender as well as impairments. Yeah, Um, definitely. So we have actually not... Because Sessa Ghost is a standalone game but a thematic sequel, we've kept the same characters. So the same characters are coming through and the characters were a key point in that and having their gender diversity and having the cultural diversity. So bringing those through and putting that all that effort up front means that we're able to bring something through and maintain that. So that's, I guess, one of the things coming through. And then also looking at colorblind. So the prototype cards we know are not good enough for the sector cards in terms of potentially for colorblind lists and for visual impairments. So they've got like a tiny little icon on there because, perfectly honest, I rushed the prototypes. But we knew we need to make that bigger because we know that some of the cars might look a little bit too similar with people with visual impairments. But if you have a very distinctive icon, you can always just tell them apart very easily. So mm-hmm. the iconography and having that as a secondary one, even if you've got something for colorblind and it works across the different colorblinds, it's always worth having that back up just in case because it might not work for everyone and you might not get it quite right in either way anyway because um, yeah, a multitude of colours, it's often hard to get something that works for absolutely everyone. So yeah, icon backup, just go belt and braces, don't just rely on one even if you try to do it perfectly right on the first one, something with the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some people prefer to read icons anyway, just in general, as a memory trigger. Yeah, I much prefer icons. So Stu and I always have debates. We had lots of debates about whether we should have icons or words on, for example, the roll cards. And writing, I can't decipher it very easily at all. I have to read it carefully every single time. I can't speed read it very well. I'm dyslexic myself, which is probably part of the reason. But an icon, I can get that really quick with a trigger. Whereas Stu finds the icon somewhat hard to interpret, but he can skim read the text really, really quickly. And he gets the grasp of it from that way. So that's great from sort of uh, reading. So for children, as well as learning difficulties or differences. Um, but it's also great for, for different languages. And I know, so the cards that we use in this game are not a traditional card shape. Did you have any difficulty with coming up? Like, did you know going into it that the puzzle in this was going to use square cards? Or was that something that kind of evolved over the design process? It just felt right thematically. It, I mean, having a rectangular card to show a sector of space on a, a grid, it just didn't, it didn't feel right thematically. It just, a grid worked better visually. And so that's, that was actually the, the reason for it. Plus it takes a little less per table space up, which is also a bit of an advantage as well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it just felt thematic. It felt right. And Stu to start with was like, you don't like square cards. Why have you gone for square cards? And then it's like, and over time, it's like, I really like the square cards. Um, so yeah, it was more of a thematic decision than anything else. 
they're big enough that they're okay to hold in your hands. You don't ever hold many of them, so that should never really be an issue anyway. So yeah, it's thematic reasons, I guess, is the reason for it. And it, it looks much nicer. And the art we went for was very symmetrical. And putting symmetrical art on a rectangular card just didn't quite feel right. So symmetrical in both vertical and horizontal, as opposed to in one direction. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I love, like you said, when you think of when you're looking in space and you you think of grids when you're, you know, think of any sci-fi show you've watched when they're in space and they've got those square grids, it does feel like that with the cards that you've done. And so what do you think is the most memorable aspect of this game that players are going to walk away with? Most people just say that it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, sort of the, a lot of the feedback is like, I died on my third time and I loved it kind of thing. <laughs> so the, the, I guess the, the, the slight piece of uh, advice and warning on this in that unless you get really lucky, you're unlikely to win your first game, and probably not your second, maybe not even your third. But hopefully it will keep you wanting to come back for more because you'll know how you can do better. And as you play it, you'll start understanding the strategies. And a strategy starts during setup. It doesn't start on the first round of the game. And so there are really, really important decisions to be made during setup as well as every turn of the game. Do I wait? Do I go? What's going to happen if I wait too long? Can I manipulate something? What's the probability the next card I get out in my hand? Is that going to help me or not? And as you play it, you'll start understanding the grid. You'll start understanding the probabilities. And I'm not talking about deeply understanding. I'm talking about gut understanding. Mm -hmm. This one comes up a lot kind of thing because that's very much how I work. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I did an engineering degree a lot on gut and minimized the number of equations, <laughs> but I got it right most times. Um, so that is how I sort of approach the games. It's a lot about gut rather than a spreadsheet with a thousand numbers in it. It's about how does it actually work? Um, so yeah, hopefully it's going to be this discovery of strategies as you keep playing it and wanted to go back and refine your strategy to eventually win. And I think sort of people are saying it's taking them um, at least five, if not 10 attempts to win um, their first game and then to sort of continue to refine the strategy, which is why the escape pod, we actually explicitly say, do not play with on your first game. Probably do not play with it on your second game. Wait until you've got it because it's just too much to think about with your tr- as you're learning and evolving your strategy, having that on top, which actually is, for me, that's the best way to play. But it's just too much in your first couple of games, which is why it got stripped out and added as a variant and said, don't play this yet. It's just too much. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that's part of the thing that I loved about Assembly, too, was um, I mean, it didn't take me 10 times to win with Assembly, but I definitely lost on my first my first playthrough. And it it had that same feeling of, wow, I really want to play this again so I can change things. I know I messed up and figure out this puzzle. So it's great that that carries through in the sequel as well with Sensor Ghosts. Yeah, we've, we've added in something called a, a low memory mode. So throughout the rules, there are little snippets on how to refine the difficulty down a bit and just make it that little bit more lenient, easier. Um, so you can really fine tune the gameplay to your tastes and how you enjoy playing it based on that and not feel like you're doing something wrong. So you have like the core game that you can eventually work up to but you can do all these little tweaks as you go along and i suggest sort of like playing the introductory with all of the low memory low mode stuff to start with and then slowly take them out depending on which bits you like and which bits you feel you can remove 
Um, so yeah, that's what we've, we've done in there to make it a bit different. Plus that we've got different layouts and we've got the skate pod and we've got ways to tweak the deck to increase and decrease difficulty too. Yeah. And I loved the notes that you had throughout, um, letting people know, Hey, it's okay to change this to suit the level that you need. You're not playing it wrong. You're not breaking the game. It's built for you to kind of customize to the level that you want. That was a, a big lesson we learned actually on assembly was got a playtester feedback and said that we sat in silence. The game was really boring. I hated it. I thought, uh, why on earth did you do that? Why didn't, why didn't you just <laughs> change the rules and play it so that it was fun and then tell me how it was fun? And that was, that was a sort of, a, ah, some people don't like doing that. I hadn't even thought of that. I, I, did, I played the rules that are most fun for me and thematic for me. And if I don't like the rules, I'll change them so that the game's fun. But giving people permission to do that not only takes away some of the thinking for people forcing how to do it but also for those that want to follow the rules as they are set out exactly it gives them permission to do it Mm -hmm. and it gives them ideas and how to change it without feel like they are playing it wrong um which i know is a thing people don't like playing games wrong they like playing exactly as written so you have to be really careful that you can you don't exclude people by being I guess, in some ways too precise, but at the same time that you don't lose the game by being not precise enough and leaving too much uncertainty. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so the Kickstarter for Sensor Ghost has been successful and funded. So for people who who may have missed that and want to get a copy for themselves, are you going to be doing pre-order like you did with Assembly? Yes, so we will have uh, pre-orders opening at some point in the latter half of July. Uh, we need to get it all set up, but uh, yes, we'll have pre-orders um, this time as well. It'll probably be a shorter window. It'll be one, two months tops, as although we have a late delivery, or by late I mean sort of later than I would like, sort of a January delivery date, we are really pushing to try and get this out early. So um Probably shouldn't say this, uh, <laughs> but my, my internal target is to have it out in October, November. Um, and that's that's the deadline I'm working to, mm-hmm. which gives us plenty of time for things to go wrong, I guess, as well. But uh, yeah, that's another learning is that things go wrong, which you completely outside of your control that you can do nothing about. Um, but uh, last time we got games out mid-October, um, in mid-October to late October, they started getting sent out. And we didn't actually get the files to our manufacturer until late August. So this time we're we're aiming for um, files to be in a month earlier. And so hopefully games will be a month earlier as well. But there's always potential hiccups along the way. Fantastic. And where can people follow you online so they can catch those updates when you send them out? Online, you can find on Twitter. My personal account is Dravin, D-R-A-V-V-I-N. Um, and uh, if you want to follow Ren Games more generally, it's Ren Games, W-R-E-N Games, G-A-M-E-S, across both Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And then there's also rengames.co.uk for our website where you can find our newsletters to subscribe to. And we don't spam you. It's like once a month if, if we get around to it. So once, once every four to six weeks generally is the update. Um, but they're generally quite long. So sorry about that. <laughs> Information <laughs> is good. <laughs> Yes, it's giving me the bits that are interesting and not the rest, but we find it's, um, it's it tries to give interesting content rather than just, hey, go buy a latest game. It, it's normally more sort of like the designing to be inclusive started as a lot of different things that we sent out in newsletters, which we then ultimately collated together into a single blog article, which ends up on our website. 
So on the newsletter, you'll get to read our thinkings first. Fantastic. Well, yes, everybody should go out and follow Janice and Run Game so you can get those updates if you miss the Kickstarter so that you can pre-order Sensor Ghosts. And Janice, thanks so much for coming back on the show and talking with me. It's always wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, have a lovely weekend. Yeah, you too. And for our listeners, if you have any questions or comments you would like to share with us, please email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com. And you can find us on major social media platforms at playabilitypod. Thanks again for listening. And I hope this episode helps you play with a new perspective.